to my little friend. Folks, welcome once more to Say Hello to My Little Friend, the podcast covering all kinds of issues in philosophy, theology, biblical studies, social issues, and whatever happens to be grabbing my incredibly short attention span at the time. I am your host, Glenn Peoples, and this is episode 42. This time, the subject is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, specifically the historicity of of the resurrection of Jesus. That's the question of to what extent we can talk about the resurrection as an historical event. Now the point of what I'll be saying is not just to convince you that the resurrection of Jesus did take place, although I I will be presenting reasons for believing that it did. I'm well aware that a large number of my listeners are Christians already and so they believe in the resurrection. Now the point of this episode is more to show you that the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus can be defended and to help you to do so yourselves, if you should be so inclined. I'll be talking about something that has been dubbed the minimal facts approach to defending the resurrection. It's certainly not original with me, none of this material is, and it's been presented by others before, especially by Gary Habermas, uh, Mike Lycona, William Lane Craig, and and others. So this, this isn't my idea. In a sense, this is a demonstration of that method to encourage you to use it yourselves. So with that brief introduction out of the way, let's get going. Why should you believe in a crazy thing like a zombie Jesus? Nobody would believe in such nonsensical magic unless they were brainwashed into believing everything their ancient holy book said. Thus saith the internet skeptic. Some of them, at least, you may have heard those lines before. Now, of course, it's true that that Christians believe that the writings of the New Testament do have a unique status. But according to the Christian faith, the New Testament gained that status because of the historical truth of what it says about the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. But put yourself in the position of not having a New Testament with any kind of special status. So project yourself back in time to the first century. You've got all the writings of the New Testament, which are ancient documents claiming to refer to historical events, and there are plenty of other historical documents from the the ancient world, and let's say you've got access to all of those as well. Take away any commitment to the Christian doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, forget the stronger doctrine of inerrancy, and then ask yourself, What facts could you then establish about the life of Jesus, and how would those facts contribute to the case for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth? Because that's effectively the position that an open-minded non-believer will find himself in. Something that people with no experience in history might not appreciate sometimes is that when we talk about establishing historical facts, 
We can't talk about proving or definitively showing that something happened. We can only really talk about events being more or less probable up to a point where events are so probable that confidently rejecting them starts to look pretty dogmatic. What the minimal facts approach to the resurrection of Jesus essentially does is that it takes four or five facts. I'll I'll be using four. Some other people use different numbers of facts. But they're facts that are, from any perspective, whether you're a believer or not, well attested as far as historical facts go. And it doesn't take the resurrection as one of those facts. That would be kind of cheating. And then it looks at available explanations for those sets of facts or for the set of facts that we'll be talking about today. And it concludes that to reject the resurrection of Jesus as the best explanation of those facts is unreasonably dogmatic. Now, before we move on to look at the facts in question, let's have a look at some of the criteria that we can use when assessing the historicity of a purported claim. So number one, a useful criteria is is that of multiple sources or multiple attestation, this is sometimes called. If two or more sources attest to the same fact, then it becomes more likely authentic. That is, this fact counts in favor of the historicity of the event rather than against it. Now, for a number of historical facts, we only have one source, and yet we still believe them. So if you have two or more, then it starts to move up the ladder. The second factor is that of enemy attestation. Maybe enemy is a strong word. Let's call it hostile witness. If people who oppose the viewpoint of the writer nonetheless corroborate a given fact that the writer claims, then it becomes more likely authentic. That's the way uh, this principle works in modern courtrooms as well. If you've got someone who who really has no interest in agreeing with you, in fact, in a sense, they'd be better off not agreeing with you because of their agenda, and yet they're willing to concede that a certain fact is a fact, then you can count that in favor of the fact that we we're looking at at the time. Number three, the principle of embarrassment. If the text embarrasses the writer, then that counts in favor of the fact. In other words, if a certain fact actually might make the writer's case look weaker or kind of embarrassing, and yet they're willing to admit it anyway, that it counts in favor of their honesty. And so it actually improves the likelihood that what they're saying is true. Is uh, eyewitness testimony is another factor. First-hand accounts are to be preferred. And lastly, and really quite similar to that, early testimony. So an early account, that is an account closer in time to the facts being described, are more likely to be accurate than a later one. So these are the kind of factors that we should be looking at when we're asking just how likely a claim is to be historically factual. Bearing these in mind, I think that there are four facts, each of which on its own stands up to scrutiny as historically genuine. And those facts are, number one, the death of Jesus by crucifixion. So his execution is the first fact. Fact number two is his burial, the fact that Jesus was buried in the tomb. Fact number three is the discovery of the empty tomb. And fact number four is the early belief in the resurrection of Jesus on the part of his disciples. In other words, the belief that they had seen Jesus alive again. So let's start going through these facts from the beginning. So fact number one, the execution of Jesus, his death by crucifixion. All four Gospels attest 
to the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's quite clear that not all of the Gospels are drawing on the same tradition of transmission. Let me explain that. It's well known that there is a lot of common material used in the case of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are called the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, It's generally held that Mark was the earliest written gospel and that Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source along with other sources uh, like L, which is a bunch of material that Luke used but Matthew didn't, or Q, which is a bunch of material that was used by uh, both Matthew and Luke but not Mark. But John did not use Mark as a source as Luke did, and John didn't make use of that elusive cluster of sources called Q as Matthew and Luke did. So we have two sources already for the crucifixion of Jesus. You've got the synoptic tradition, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you've got John, which is an independent tradition claiming that Jesus was crucified. So you've got two early sources. When I say early, I mean first century sources. What's more, in the early 2nd century, Tacitus, a Roman historian and an official with access to state records, which is what makes him important, himself an opponent of Christianity, claims that Jesus was crucified under the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate in his work called The Annals, chapter 15, or is it book 15? I'm never sure of the appropriate way to refer to it. But writing as an historian of the great fire of Rome, he wrote, and I quote, Neither human effort, nor princely largess, nor, is that how you say that word? I don't know. Nor divine appeasement was able to dispel the scandal that the fire was believed to have been commanded by Nero. So, to do away with the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits those who were commonly called Christians, who were hated because of their absurdities, and he inflicted them with the most extraordinary punishments. Christus, the source of this name, was executed during the during the reign of Tiberius by the sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate, and the destructive superstition was suppressed, only to break out in the present, not only in Judea, the source of this evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all hateful and shameful things flow and find a following. Christus, of course, is Latin, it's the equivalent of Christ, which is how Jesus was referred to by his followers. Aside from this, The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus refers to the crucifixion in his famous work, The Antiquities. Now, Josephus was a first century writer. Although the text of Josephus was unfortunately later meddled with to also include the resurrection and even the claim that Jesus was the Messiah, something that no Jew would have claimed, there's no serious doubt that in in its original form, the work did refer to Jesus' crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Josephus wrote, When Pilate, upon hearing him, this is talking about Jesus, accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified. So Josephus is writing in the first century. Tacitus, he was writing in the second century, but as an historian with with access to all the records, is certainly a reliable source. So we've easily got multiple attestation with four independent sources here. You've got the synoptic tradition, you've got John, you've got Tacitus, and you've got Josephus. Now, that's the kind of evidence that historians dream of when piecing together historical accounts. Even some of the most unreasonably skeptical biblical scholars in modern times, simply because of the weight of the historical evidence, agree that Jesus' crucifixion is an historical event. Robert Funk, the late chairman of the Jesus Seminar, accepted, and I quote, The crucifixion was one indisputable fact which neither the early Christians nor their opponents 
could deny. Similarly, uh, kind of the darling of modern-day skeptical biblical scholarship, John Dominic Crossan, no friend of Orthodox Christian theology by any means, wrote of Jesus, quote, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. So this is this is the kind of thing that's really in the category of fact. I mean, you can deny it in the sense that you can deny anything at all. But if in the course of discussing the resurrection of Jesus, the person you're speaking with isn't even willing to grant the crucifixion, then pretty much any discussion of history is a waste of time. The crucifixion meets any reasonable standard of historicity. So let's move on to fact number two, Jesus' burial. Now, easily our earliest source on Jesus, the Apostle Paul, writing in the mid-50s, makes three references to the burial of Jesus in Romans chapter 6, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Colossians chapter 2. Now, because of the proximity of Paul's writing to the events, Gerd Ludemann, a skeptical German New Testament scholar who himself denies the resurrection of Jesus, grants, and I quote, Jesus was obviously buried. There's a tradition of burial in Paul's letters. It's a very old tradition and likely to be historical. It's also quite significant if you if you look at the gospel accounts of the burial of Jesus. It's significant that Joseph of Arimathea is named in the gospels as the person who buried Jesus in his own tomb. For example, Mark chapter 15 verses 43 and following, you'll, you'll see that account in the earliest of our gospels. Now this is important because it's highly implausible that the early Christians would make up a person, give him a name and a town of origin, place this fictional character on the historical council of the Sanhedrin, the members of which were well known and would have still been known when Mark's gospel began to be distributed. Some of them may have even still been alive. In fact, many of them we should assume would have been. It's unlikely to be a fabrication because it would be a pretty crummy one and they would have known this. What's more, the gospel writers had no interest in depicting members of the Jewish Sanhedrin as good people from a Christian point of view. They were the group, remember, that handed Jesus over to the Romans who killed him. So depicting such a person in this very positive pro-Christian light kind of invokes the principle of embarrassment. You know, why, why would you do that? Unless this man was really sympathetic to Christ and had him buried, why name him as the person who did so? So what we have here is, as far as historical records in general go, a very early record, one that could be relatively easily falsified if it wasn't true, and one that actually wouldn't seem ideal to some Christians and would likely have been presented differently if it were a fictional, idealized account of events. What about fact number three? And this is where things start to get a little bit more contentious. That is the fact of the empty tomb. The reports about the empty tomb are related by all four Gospels. So again, you've got two sources there. The fact that Jesus' burial is likely to be historical actually offers support for the empty tomb accounts. Now, why is that? Well, here's why. If Jesus' burial is historical, then it means that the location of Jesus' tomb was known. It was no secret. And the disciples themselves could not have believed in the empty tomb if Jesus' body was still there, because they knew where the tomb was. They could look and see, well, the tomb's not empty. If the tomb was not empty, then it's very difficult to explain how Christianity spread in Jerusalem, where it took root. Think about that. If the tomb, 
which was in Jerusalem, remember, was not empty, then it would have been pretty easy for the enemies of Christianity to simply produce Jesus' body. It would not have been hard. Even if somebody had produced a slightly decomposed body that you couldn't clearly recognize as Jesus, that's not the point. It would place the burden of proof on those who believed that the tomb was empty. Think about that. If the disciples went around saying, look, Jesus has risen, he's no longer in his, in his tomb, he's alive, and yet someone went to the same tomb where we knew Jesus had been buried and pulled out a dead body, they would look pretty bad for the disciples, wouldn't it? Even if it was decomposed. Because it would suggest that in fact Jesus hadn't risen. And it would be up to them to prove that this wasn't Jesus, which would be pretty difficult. But there's no record of anybody raising this challenge when the disciples began to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Now, internet-based skeptic Richard Carrier is an example of someone who denies the empty tomb. But a close look at his argument really shows how far out on a limb one has to go in order to do so. So I'm going to go on a brief discursus here just to say a few things about that. Carrier's main line of argument is that Christianity could have gotten off the ground even without an empty tomb, even with the decaying body of Jesus still lying in the tomb. Because, he says, early Christianity didn't believe in the resurrection of the body of the dead. Instead, he says, early Christians really believed that the body that died stays exactly as it is, dead, rotten in the tomb, reducing to dust eventually, but God creates a brand new body, a kind of spiritual body, by which he means not made of physical matter like you and I, but made of something I know not what, which then lives on forever. He claims that this is what the Apostle Paul believed, and that this is what Paul was talking about when he used the phrase spiritual body in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Depictions of Jesus as actually physically coming to life again, that is, the same body coming back to life, were, says Carrier, later beliefs that rapidly developed a little over a decade after Paul wrote. Bear in mind that Mark's gospel was written about 10 years after most of Paul's letters. And that, he says, is when the empty tomb story was fabricated, when this sudden transformation of of theology took place. Now, Richard Carrier himself, as far as I know, with no formal training in New Testament studies, is well aware that his rather unique understanding of early Christian belief concerning Jesus' resurrection is rejected by virtually all New Testament scholars in the world, and there's a really good reason for that. I'll just briefly cover, actually there are several good reasons, I'm going to cover a couple of major reasons, reasons that I think are more than adequate. The first reason is the Jewish background of the Christian idea of resurrection. We know from the Jewish literature circulating at the time of Jesus that the Jewish concept of resurrection was a very physical one, where the remains of the dead would no longer be in the grave, but be brought back to life. Here are just a few examples. From the book of 4 Ezra, chapter 7 and verse 32, it reads, The earth shall restore those who sleep in her, and the dust who rest in it, and the chambers those entrusted to them. Right, so the thing that's restored is the stuff that's in the dust, the stuff that's in the tomb, the thing that's in the earth. In First Enoch, chapter 51, beginning at verse 1, it reads, In those days the earth will also give back what has been entrusted to it, and Sheol, which is the grave, will give back what it has received, and hell will give back what it owes. 
So again, we're looking at things actually coming up out of the earth. In the Sibylline Oracle, chapter 4, we read, God himself will refashion the bones and ashes of humans and rise up, sorry, raise up mortals as they were before. Or the book of 2 Baruch, chapter 50, verses 2 and following. It says, For certainly the earth will then restore the dead. It will not change their form, but just as it received them, so it will restore them. While, as we will see shortly, Jewish converts to Christianity may have said more about the changed quality of the resurrected dead, the idea of resurrection to which they appealed just meant the bringing back to life of that which was dead in the grave. As Edward Bode writes, and I quote, A changed body is not a different body. Jewish mentality would never have accepted a division of two bodies, one in the tomb and another in a risen life. End quote. So that's the first problem with Carrier's suggestion. As people from a thoroughly Jewish background, the idea of resurrection just meant the physical object coming back to life. The second reason why Carrier's claim about early Christian belief fails is that the data in the earliest Christian writings, namely those of the Apostle Paul, contradicts what he suggests. Carrier claims that by spiritual body, Paul meant to refer to a body that was not the same body raised back to life, but a new, ethereal, and not really physical body, but one made of an altogether otherworldly substance, leaving the old body behind in the grave. So you don't need an empty tomb, he says. But this is clearly a misreading of the Apostle Paul. Firstly, it simply plucks Paul right out of his first century Jewish context where such an idea would have been nonsense. But secondly, if we look at Paul's own comments on the resurrection, we can see that he simply did not think this way. Yes, he used the term spiritual body, but it's a mistake to assume that for Paul the word spiritual meant not physical. Paul uses the word spiritual or pneumatikos in Greek over 20 times in his letters, and on none of those occasions does it mean non-physical as opposed to physical. It just doesn't describe one substance as opposed to another. Instead, it describes a relationship or an orientation. Perhaps the most helpful comparison to make here is between 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul speaks of the resurrection, and he refers to the present body, the natural or soulish body, and the future resurrection body, and earlier in the same book in 1 Corinthians 15 chapter sorry 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul compares two types of person the soulish or natural man and the spiritual man where the words for natural and spiritual are the same words as used when talking about the resurrection and yet in chapter 2 when they describe two different people Clearly, Paul's not suggesting that there are people walking around on earth right now made out of two radically different substances. You know, some are physical and some are not physical. No, he's talking about people who are rightly related to God as spiritual and people who are focused on themselves, not interested in the things of God, as natural. So when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after seeing Paul repeatedly and frequently use these terms this way, and we see him talking about a present natural body being one day transformed into a spiritual body, the point is that we will, every part of us, be renewed and brought into a fuller and more perfect relationship with God. What's more, 
Paul's explicit comments on the resurrection show that he did not think of it as the replacement of the dead body which remained in the tomb with a new body that was never even dead to begin with. Paul is clear that the resurrection is about raising up the dead. Several times he says that God will raise the dead, but if nothing dead ever comes to life, then what's actually being raised? Well, nothing. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that we hope for the eventual redemption of our bodies, clearly referring to our existing bodies undergoing something that he calls redemption. Not the replacement of our bodies, but the redemption of them. Just a few verses earlier in Romans chapter 8, he has said that God will one day give life to our mortal bodies. In fact, the very same chapter where he uses the term spiritual body, uh, that is 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the analogy of a seed for our existing body, saying that it goes into the ground, that is, it goes into the ground, and it is sown as a natural body, and it will be raised a spiritual body, making it clear that it's the same object throughout this process. He prefaces this discussion by saying that what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, indicating that the same body that dies will, in Paul's view, come to life. As for those who are alive at the time of the resurrection, he says, not that their bodies will drop dead to be replaced with new ones, leaving their dead bodies lying on the ground behind them, but that they will be immediately transformed. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. So we're talking about a transformed body, but the same body nonetheless. Paul's view of resurrection simply cannot be thought of as the case of the old body remaining in the grave while the new one lives on, and we can't claim that to be the early Christian view on the basis of the Pauline writings. So in fact, and thus ends my discursus on Richard Carrier's claim, the empty tomb was required by early Christian belief. And without the empty tomb, the early success of Christianity in Jerusalem is at least rather surprising. The next point is that the enemies of Christianity didn't disagree that the tomb was found empty. You would expect that they would go around saying, no, no, there's no empty tomb, this is a fabrication. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 12 and 13. And also in the second century, as recorded by Justin Martyr, this explanation was still being used by the Jewish authorities. And the explanation was that the disciples stole the body. In other words, the Jewish authorities of the time and in the, the decades following were using their own alternative explanation of the empty tomb. They didn't deny the empty tomb. In fact, when Matthew writes this, when he says that this is the story that the Jewish authorities began to spread, he comments to his readers in passing that this is the story still being passed around to this day, suggesting that it is a phenomenon that they would have been well aware of. So that's difficult to explain if the tomb wasn't empty. Why would, why would, they even, why would the opponents of the Christian faith even concede that the tomb was empty and come up with an alternative story for why it wasn't occupied if in fact Jesus was still in the tomb. Next, the gospel accounts describe the first discovery of the empty tomb as being carried out by women, and that increases the likelihood that that account is authentic. Well, why would that be? Unfortunately, the testimony of women was not deemed to be as credible as the testimony of men. Josephus exhibits this kind of judicial sexism when he says, and I quote, Let not the testimony of women be admitted 
on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, end quote. As John Wenham notes, drawing from the Jewish Mishnah, and I quote, women were allowed to give evidence on matters within their, within their knowledge if there was no male witness available, end quote. But think about it. If the discovery of the empty tomb was a fiction that the gospel authors had wanted to make as plausible as possible, they could very easily have used any number of prestigious male figures. Just think of the people that they could have inserted into the narrative at this point if they were fabricating it to make it plausible. They had James, the brother of Jesus, who became leader of the Jerusalem church. They had Peter, they had John, the beloved disciple, and so on. That the writers still chose to depict women as the earliest witnesses, even though it was not in their interest to do so, increases the likelihood that we have a credible historical fact on our hands. It invokes the principle of embarrassment. Jewish scholar Geza Vermes writes that, and I quote, The evidence furnished by female witnesses had no standing in male-dominated Jewish society. If the empty tomb had been manufactured by the primitive church to demonstrate the reality of the resurrected Jesus, one would have expected a uniform and foolproof account attributed to patently reliable witnesses. He's a Jewish scholar. He's got no interest in defending the resurrection. Again, historian Michael Grant, also not a Christian, says, and I quote, The historian cannot justifiably deny the empty tomb. If we apply the same sort of criteria that we would apply to any other ancient sources, then the empty tomb is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. Let's move on to the final fact, the post Mortem, post-crucifixion, call them what you will, appearances of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to smuggle in the resurrection here and say that these were actual appearances of Jesus risen from the dead. That would be cheating. That would kind of be begging the question. However, after his crucifixion, it is agreed that a number of individuals and groups of people had experiences that they believed to be experiences of Jesus risen from the dead. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through to 9, he quotes an early creedal formulation for Christians. He talks about the teachings that were passed on to him and which he is now passing on to his readers. He mentions eyewitness accounts. He mentions that several of the apostles and groups of people witnessed appearances. In fact, he says up to 500 people at one time. And then in case anyone doubted that they had done so, while some of them were now dead, many of them were still alive. They could be consulted to see whether or not Paul was just making it up. It's generally agreed that this is early eyewitness testimony. Jesus died in either 30 or 33 AD, and Paul's letter is dated around AD 54, not a very big historical time gap. But note that Paul is reiterating teaching that was passed on to him when he set the church up in Corinth, which is known to be in around AD 50. Furthermore, remember that Peter, John, and James must have had it before Paul. Most scholars think that Paul probably received this creed. Remember, he says, I received it, now I'm passing it on. Well, where did Paul receive it? Well, Paul went to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James, the apostles, in AD 35, at which time they would have already formulated the creed within the early church. James D.G. Dunn says, and I quote, This tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. End quote. 
In terms of sources, we've got at least three. We've got Paul, we've got Luke, we've got John. Written sources that, as far as we know, don't depend on each other. It's worth noting that this tradition reproduced by Paul not only affirms the appearances of Jesus, but in saying that he rose on the third day, he's likely referring to the fact that this is when Jesus' tomb was discovered empty, scoring another point here for the historicity of the empty tomb. Going back again to Gaze Vermes, he concludes that, and I quote, no doubt the New Testament characters believed in the reality of their visions of Jesus, end quote. Why such confidence? How can we be so sure that they believed in the reality of their visions of Jesus risen again? Firstly, because of the very early origin of the belief. You've got Paul's repetition of what had to be an early statement of Christian belief. Interestingly, you've also got James, the brother of Jesus, who the Gospels tell us was not a follower of Jesus, which is a somewhat embarrassing thing to admit. But it's understandable too. Who would be willing to admit that his brother was the Lord? <laughs> I mean, that would that would really get under your skin. But James became a believer in the risen Jesus after the resurrection had allegedly taken place. In Paul's list of witnesses to the resurrection, there is James. James' belief that he had seen the risen Lord would certainly account for this dramatic change of heart, going from being an unbeliever to becoming not just a Christian, but the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Then you've got an interesting fact. The early Christians were persecuted severely for proclaiming the gospel, and yet they did it anyway, even though it may have cost them their lives, And as it, in fact it did sometimes. In the case of James, we know that he lost his life for his faith. But why is that important? After all, people die for false beliefs, don't they? Well, yes, they do. But think about it. Think about the modern state of the, of the martyr. Think about, say, a suicide bomber in, in the modern world who dies for his faith in God. He dies because he believes that Muhammad, for example, received revelation from God. Well, this person wasn't there. They don't actually know whether or not Muhammad did receive this revelation, and yet they trust that he did. You take a Mormon today. Let's say a Mormon was willing to die for his faith. Well, that's, that's interesting, but that Mormon wasn't there when the golden plates were allegedly made known to Joseph Smith. They didn't see them. But now you take someone like James or Peter or John, one of the first century disciples, somebody who actually knew whether or not the tomb was empty and who actually knew whether or not they had seen the risen Jesus. You see, that's the difference. These people were actually in a position to know whether or not they had encountered Jesus risen from the dead, and yet they were willing to die for their claim that they had. As, as has been said before, liars make poor martyrs. It's very difficult to account for the willingness of the early Christians to suffer and die for their faith, given their unique position to know whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead, unless they in fact believed that they had encountered him alive again. Now, none of these four historical facts concerns a miracle. None of them. None of them presuppose the resurrection. They don't assume that the Bible is inspired. They are, in any historical sense, ordinary mundane facts. And each of them is on its own very historically plausible to the point where there is simply no good reason to deny them. Now, you might point out that you can find moderns who deny one of these historical facts. So-and-so doesn't believe in this fact. Uh, 
John Dominic Crossan doesn't believe in the burial and the tomb, for example. Okay, that's fine. I don't deny that. Maybe so. And I haven't said that absolutely all scholars everywhere accept all four of these facts. My point is just that there does exist a convergence of opinion among scholars today that these four facts are historical in nature. And those scholars are definitely not limited to the conservative Christian community or even the Christian community more broadly. In other words, you don't have to be a Christian to accept these four facts. I'm not appealing to things that only Christians would believe. That's the point. Now, if you're looking around on the internet to see what non-believers, or at least the highly vocal non-believers out there, have to say about this minimal facts approach to defending the historicity of the resurrection, you might be surprised by the way that it's addressed. Typically, as far as I've seen anyway, it's addressed with extraordinary haste, not really taking the time to look at the facts in question and the evidence for them. In preparing this episode, for example, I read an example of a rebuttal of this method, that consisted of saying, in effect, well, the facts in question are not the crucifixion, the burial, the empty tomb, or even the first disciples believing in the resurrection of Jesus. All we need to explain is why some people started claiming that these things were facts 50 years later. 50 years! Now, this person has obviously not even looked at the evidence. Paul's writing is roughly within 20 years, and Mark's gospel roughly 30 years of the events in question. What's more, Paul is clearly drawing on traditions much older than his own writings, and well-informed historians of that era, and slightly later were able to confirm at least some of the facts concerned. So these facts can't simply be quickly tossed aside. They gained the status that they have as widely accepted facts among skeptical New Testament historians for good reasons. And so the question becomes, what is the best way to explain this combination of facts? Remember, in order to count as an explanation, a hypothesis needs explanatory scope. And by that I mean it has to be able to explain all four of these facts. The best explanation also needs explanatory power. It must genuinely explain the four facts. It must make the facts more probable than not. The best explanation will be less contrived than other explanations. It won't require us to hastily adopt as many new beliefs without evidence, as other theories will. The best explanation will also be more plausible than other explanations, in the sense that it will not jar with our background knowledge of the facts, facts that we're aware of. So what kind of explanations are there? Well, there are explanations that have been doing the rounds for a number of centuries now. The first one I'm going to look at is what we could call the conspiracy explanation. Now, according to the conspiracy explanation, the disciples of Jesus stole the body of Jesus and then conspired to lie about his appearances. And that's simply all there is to it. They faked it. Now, does that explanation explain all the facts? Well, no, it doesn't. It denies one of them. It denies that the early followers of Jesus actually believed that they had seen him alive again. But the evidence that they held this belief does look pretty compelling. Just think of what the conspiracy hypothesis is asking you to believe. Imagine how the conversation might have gone among the disciples. Okay, here's the plan. We defeat the professional Roman guards, we steal and hide the body of our friend, and then we go around telling people something that could get us killed, even though we know it's a lie. I think it's fair to say that there is a plausibility concern with this hypothesis. The other issue with plausibility is that we're projecting a Christian view of the Messiah back onto a Jewish group of disciples. To us living today, 
2,000 years after the fact. Of course, Jesus' resurrection is associated with him being the Messiah, so we might expect a really ambitious and foolish early disciple to try to make it look like his master had risen from the dead, so as to bolster the view that he was the Messiah after all. But we only think that because of the Gospels. We only think that because of our belief that Jesus rose from the dead, or, or even if you're not a Christian, with your association between Jesus and his resurrection. But for a Jew living in the first century, as N.T. Wright explained, if your candidate for Messiah has just been crucified, then you are simply wrong to think that it was the Messiah. End of story. You should go home or find another Messiah. Because Jewish messianic expectations did not include the belief that the Messiah would be killed and then rise again. That's the way Christians think now because of Jesus. Jesus' death would have signaled that he was not the Messiah, and it would have not even occurred to a first century follower of Jesus to try to trick people into thinking that Jesus was the Messiah by inventing a story of his resurrection. Explanation number two, then. Perhaps Jesus wasn't really dead after all. This is sometimes called the apparent death hypothesis, and it's the claim that while Jesus was bashed senseless and crucified, the Romans got it wrong in allowing him to be taken down from the cross and buried because they actually hadn't successfully killed him. He was still alive, albeit just barely. After his burial in the tomb, Jesus came to in the cool night air, some have said. He unwrapped himself, unsealed the tomb, rolled away the stone, got past the guards and found his disciples, who became persuaded that he had been resurrected from the dead. Now this view did have a few adherents in centuries gone by. Hermann Raimarus, was it Raimarus? Something like that. Carl Venturini and Heinrich Paulus in the early 19th century held the view although it's generally held to have been thoroughly refuted by Albert Schweitzer and David Strauss, among others, and the whole idea was largely abandoned by the middle of that century. But think about this view, if it were true. It would account for Jesus' death, yes, it would account for his burial, it would account for the empty tomb, and it would account for the claim that the disciples had seen Jesus. So the basic facts would be explained, so we've got explanatory scope, but do we have explanatory power? How well does this explain the facts? Gary Habermas, back in 2009 on the Ankerberg Show, said, and I quote, I just did a count recently of what scholars say. First of all, you can count on one hand of the 2,400 sources since 1975 on the resurrection in French, German, English, who think apparent death is true. End quote. And this, this is not just an appeal to authority or to numbers. There's a very good reason for this overwhelming consensus. The hypothesis that early Christian belief arose because Jesus managed to scrape through resurrection with his life is absurd. Tom Wright is surely stating the obvious when he says, Roman soldiers knew how to kill people, especially rebel kings. First century Jews knew the difference between a survivor and someone newly alive. End quote. Try to imagine what is actually being proposed by those who avoid the resurrection by claiming that Jesus rising from the dead was a mistaken belief caused by the fact that Jesus didn't quite die. Archaeological evidence from the skeletal remains of victims of crucifixion show that a thick iron nail, more like a kind of square bolt, 
was driven right through the heel bone of both feet. Together with nails through both wrists, you can appreciate that, especially when considering the overall fatigue, the extraordinary physical trauma, the blood loss, and so on, the sheer act of unwrapping himself and walking anywhere would have been impossible for a survivor of crucifixion. This is to say nothing of the alleged incompetence of those who crucified him and allowed him to be taken down from the cross alive, or the task of rolling away the stone and getting past the guards. To make matters worse, we're, asked to, we're being asked here to believe that a person in this state, beaten, bruised, bloodied, barely able to walk, somehow managed to convince his followers not that he had incredibly survived, but that he'd actually been risen from the dead. And those followers, based on what they saw, went on to believe that Jesus was raised gloriously in power and majesty as the Lord of the universe. Now, to put it mildly, that's not how I would react. I'd be saying, wow, you're still alive. Let's get you to a doctor. None of the earliest sources we have on the post-mortem appearances of Jesus fit with a man who was lucky to be alive at all and just barely so. Explanation number three. Maybe the body just got lost somehow. Maybe, some might say, Jesus' followers mistakenly believed in the resurrection because somehow the body went AWOL. Maybe they went to, the, went to the wrong tomb, that's what some people have said, on that first Easter Sunday, and surprise, surprise, it was empty. And so they started saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, right from the outset, the theory lacks explanatory scope. Because even if it's true, it doesn't explain all the facts. It accounts for the crucifixion and the burial, as well as attempting to explain the empty tomb, but it has nothing to offer when explaining the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. So it lacks explanatory scope. In order for an, an explanatory hypothesis to be successful, it, it has to explain all the facts. Now put, your, put yourself in the first century context. You've become a follower of Jesus. You start to think that perhaps he might be the promised Messiah of Israel. And then he's crucified, humiliated, and he dies. And you feel like all your hopes have come to nothing. You see what, as far as you're concerned, is proof positive that this guy wasn't the Messiah after all. And then his body is taken down off the cross and, as John Dominic Crossan speculates, thrown into a ditch somewhere and eaten by dogs. Or That's actually what he says, I'm not kidding. Or buried in a tomb and then you never see him again, ever. And you're not even certain what tomb he was buried in, so you visit one tomb and there's nothing in it, no evidence of Jesus' burial. So what do you say to yourself? Well, you've got a failed Messiah in an empty tomb. What you say to yourself is, whoops, this must be the wrong tomb. I came to find the body, which I expected to find, and I just can't find it. You don't cook up a story about him really being the Messiah after all and rising from the dead. It's not as if the disciples were predisposed to hope that the Messiah would rise from the dead, because that just wasn't part of the Jewish package of beliefs about the Messiah. But again, if the burial tradition is as reliable as it appears to be, then the likelihood that nobody could find the right tomb a couple of days later diminishes dramatically. What's more, even if some of Jesus' disciples didn't know where the tomb was, certainly Joseph of Arimathea, the owner of the tomb, would have known exactly where it was. It was his tomb. And as soon as the disciples started going around spreading the story that Jesus had risen from the dead, you can be pretty sure that the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin at least, of which Joseph was a member, would have been able to point them in the right direction to end this nonsense about a resurrection.
What about explanation number four? Maybe this was all a hallucination. And yes, this is something that some people take seriously. Of all the hypotheses that you might cobble together to explain the facts, the most common that you're likely to encounter is that the disciples of Jesus thought, albeit incorrectly, that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. This can be described in terms of a hallucination or some sort of visionary experience which led to the incorrect claim that Jesus was now alive again, back from the dead. Now, it's pretty clear that this hypothesis doesn't explain all of the facts. It doesn't explain the empty tomb, for example, so it lacks explanatory scope in that regard. But even of the fact that the hallucination hypothesis seeks to explain, namely the belief of the disciples that they had seen the risen Jesus, the hypothesis lacks explanatory power. In at least two ways. First, consider the claim that these appearances were hallucinations, the products of the guilty minds of people who would allow their master to be executed. That's generally how the story goes. These disciples were racked with grief and guilt, and they saw hallucinations. Their minds, their tortured minds, produced these hallucinations of Jesus risen from the dead. And now look at the fact that we're trying to explain. Jesus, according to these accounts that we're looking at in, in the New Testament, appeared to different people in different circumstances, some of whom were previously followers of his. Others, like James and Paul, were not previously followers. And yet all of them were asked to believe had hallucinations of Jesus of a nature that convinced them that Jesus had risen from the dead and was Lord of all. Now this theory would be something unheard of in the case studies of psychology. Hallucinations are not contagious, you know, they're not viruses that spread from one person to the next. They're also not things that exist externally to the human brain. They exist in the mind of the individual, so that you certainly cannot have a shared hallucination. The very concept is sheer nonsense. What's more, there are certain types of conditions that are more conducive to hallucinations than others. Hallucinations generally only occur in the minds of people who intensely want to believe something. But in the case of people said to have seen the risen Jesus, we've got first century Jews who certainly would not have expected anything like a resurrection. And you've got even you've even got people who, as far as we know, did not believe in Jesus previously. That is, they didn't follow him. They believe he existed, but they didn't follow him. They didn't believe in his claims. They didn't believe that the resurrection had happened, but became suddenly persuaded. People like Thomas, James, and Paul fit into that category. So they, a hallucination wouldn't have conformed with what they were looking for. As for the thought that the disciples had visions of Jesus, as in you know visions, supernatural visions, this too lacks explanatory power. The disciples believed in a distinction between visions and physical appearances. Think, for example, of John's vision of Jesus on the island of Patmos at the outset of the book of Revelation. Think of Peter's vision of animals being lowered down from the sky in a big sheet in the book of Acts. These were visions. The text calls them visions. Yet nowhere are the appearances of the risen Christ called visions by the followers of Jesus. They made that distinction. So it's not like they would have easily confused the two. What's more, seeing a vision of Jesus would not have given rise to the belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Why would it? As Tom Wright explains by way of a, of a somewhat amusing thought experiment, suppose that you'd been in the, 
been in the band of followers of a Jewish man named Simon, a possible Messiah figure, but the Romans, unfortunately, had killed him and put an end to that dream. Now imagine sitting around with the remaining followers a few days later or even weeks later. This is the way Wright describes the situation. The first one says, you know, I think Simon really was the Messiah, and he still is. The others would be puzzled. Of course he isn't. The Romans got him as they always do. If you want a Messiah, you'd better find another one. Ah, says the first, I believe he's been raised from the dead. What do you mean? His friends asked. He's dead and buried. Oh no, replies the first, I believe he's been exalted to heaven. The others look puzzled. All the righteous martyrs are with God. Everybody knows that. I'm not going to go into that just now. Uh, he carries on. All the, all the righteous martyrs are with God. Everyone knows that. Their souls are in God's hand. That doesn't mean they've already been raised from the dead. Anyway, the resurrection will happen to us all at the end of time, not to one person in the middle of continuing history. No, replies the first. You don't understand. I've had a strong sense of God's love surrounding me. I've felt God forgiving me, forgiving us all. I've had my heart strangely warmed. What's more, last night I saw Simon. He was there with me. The others interrupt, now angry. Look, we can all have visions. Plenty of people dream about recently dead friends. Sometimes it's very vivid. That doesn't mean they've been raised from the dead. Certainly doesn't mean that one of them is the Messiah. And if your heart has been warmed, then sing a psalm. Don't make wild claims about Simon. End quote. Now, according to the hallucination or vision theory, the first person in this group here offered this type of story. And that is how belief in the resurrection got started. But, says Wright, I'll quote him again, this solution isn't just incredible, it's impossible. Referring to the fictional discussion you've just heard, Wright muses, both to himself and to us, a little bit of disciplined historical imagination is all it takes to blow away enormous piles of so-called historical criticism. So in addition to lacking explanatory scope and explanatory power, this explanation is also contrived. The origin of the desired belief had to come from somewhere. And for Jews, where would belief in the resurrection of the Messiah come from? As I've said already, it didn't come from Jewish theology. Sure, Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead in principle, but only in the resurrection of all the dead at the end of history as we know it, not of the Messiah by himself ahead of that time. That wasn't part of the Jewish package of belief. Well, some have said, maybe they got the idea of a dying and rising saviour not from Judaism, but from paganism. This was a theory that did its rounds in the 19th century, but has well and truly faded away from respectable scholarly circles. And now it only really enjoys popularity in such absurd attention-seeking documentaries as Zeitgeist, which I discussed in a previous episode, or on internet forums populated by people who simply don't care about scholarship, they just love the scandalous claim that Christians copied other religions and made up their own. And so there were claims that Christianity was inspired by motifs from the worship of Osiris or the worship of Mithra. And these influences produced early Christian belief in the dying and rising saviour figure, Jesus Christ. There are, however, a few problems, to put it mildly, with this hypothesis. Firstly, this take on how Christian belief arose is typically presented in defense of what's called the Jesus myth hypothesis. The view that really there was no Jesus of Nazareth at all. This is just a person who was spun out of thin air. 
created as a sort of theological Frankenstein pieced together from other faiths. Now, this alone places the theory out beyond the fringes of seriousness, because virtually nobody today thinks that they can get away with actually denying that Jesus ever lived. I did a three-part blog series back in May and June 2010 called Is There No Evidence That Jesus Even Existed? where I looked at that issue, and I won't cover that now. I'll provide a link to that series in the notes for this episode over at the blog. So if you are someone who listens to this podcast at the iTunes store, head over to the blog at www.beretta-online.com and I'll provide a link under episode 42 uh, back to that blog entry. But setting that aside, this theory of pagan influences in Christianity still has a couple of hitches. The first is actually one that I've discussed before, both in the podcast in episode 19, Osiris and Jesus, and episode 38, Zeitgeist, and also at the blog back in 2009 where I wrote a blog entry called Mary Mithras. I'll put links to those as well in the notes for this episode. In short, and this is the main reason these theories collapsed in scholarly circles and got relegated to self-published books and internet discussion boards where you really don't have to pass peer review, the important parallels between pagan deities and Jesus of Nazareth, they just aren't there. You'll hear people claim that these gods were born of virgins, they had 12 disciples, they were crucified and resurrected three days later, but then when you go and look at the actual religions in question to examine them, you don't find those parallels. There's no 12 disciples, no virgin birth usually, certainly no crucifixion and no resurrection from the dead. So the idea that the first disciples might somehow come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus because of all these pagan parallels where the Savior was crucified and risen from the dead doesn't even get off the ground. There are no examples like that. The second hitch with this theory of pagan influence is that there's no good reason to think that the first century Jews would have had any respect for ancient religions that worshipped Osiris or Mithra. There's no grounds for believing in any causal connection between pagan myths and the early disciples. On the contrary, their attitude to such religions would have been one of strict exclusivity, rejecting all gods other than the God of Israel, whom they had come to believe was revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That brings us to the final explanation. What about that traditional, old-fashioned Christian explanation of these four facts? The explanation that the earliest disciples of Jesus gave, namely the view that God raised Jesus from the dead. Does it have explanatory scope? Well, yes, it does. It explains all of the facts. It explains the crucifixion, the burial, the empty tomb, and the early Christian belief that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. It also has great explanatory power, obviously making each of these four facts more probable. So it doesn't just explain the facts, it explains them very well. Given the remarkable life of Jesus of Nazareth, there's a context to this event as well. It's not just a random miracle in the life of an otherwise un uninteresting person. Rather, it's the pinnacle in the life of an incredible historical individual. Now, some say that this explanation is contrived because, well, it involves God, which is supernatural. It requires belief in a miracle. Now, these same people might say that the resurrection doesn't fit with the accepted facts, but it's hard to see how it is contrived or fails to fit with the accepted facts unless we approach this question already committed to a denial of the supernatural 
in which case it's kind of a waste of time approaching this question at all of the resurrection. Why even bother asking if, if the resurrection occurred if you're simply not going to allow for the possibility that the resurrection occurred because you're predisposed to reject any claims that a miracle has occurred. I mean, evidence is worthless when you approach the question that way. There certainly isn't time now to delve into the much wider question of whether or not we can ever justify believing that a miracle has taken place. But the sceptical arguments of the likes of Spinoza or David Hume really do belong in the 18th century context where they gained prominence, relying on a deistic, mechanistic view of nature and a worldview in which it is simply presupposed that supernatural interventions in the world are impossible. In any event, those arguments, those objections to miracles, were formulated before the advances in Bayes' probability theorem that philosophers now enjoy. And that would take us into quite some depth, which I'm not prepared to go into today. But the likes of, say, Tim and Lydia McGrew in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology have well and truly put those objections to bed. So that's a good place to go for further reading on that question. In short, provided one is not willing to dogmatically rule out anything that involves God, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead has better explanatory power and is more plausible than any other hypothesis when it comes to explaining the minimum facts that are the object of consensus among scholars from right across the spectrum of belief. All it requires is that we be open-minded inquirers. And that's it. That's the minimal facts argument for the resurrection of Jesus. Can we prove to somebody that this is what happened, that Jesus rose from the dead? If somebody just digs their heels in and says, I don't care how it looks, naturalism is true, so there is an explanation, there is a naturalistic explanation of the facts, and that's that, whether I know what it is or not, then that really is that. This case doesn't work like magic. It can't change minds. And you shouldn't expect that because it's a reasonable argument, people will hear it and convert in their droves. If only people were so reasonable. We can't bully people into being open to divine explanations. If, if, if a person has decided where they stand and where they stand simply doesn't allow for the miraculous, you can't force them to be reasonable. The point is just that only closed-minded commitment takes this line of reply, the line that no supernatural explanation is acceptable. As I indicated earlier, this isn't an argument just to persuade you. For those who are persuaded, it's an argument to be used and reused. Even if you do believe in the resurrection of Jesus, why don't you and a friend go through the argument together, present the four facts of history, and then discuss the explanatory hypotheses with one of you playing a devil's advocate. Look for weaknesses in your presentation and use the exercise to improve on them. My experience, mostly from just looking around online to see how skeptics are reacting to the minimal facts approach, my experience is that people actually get a little frustrated with the argument, quite simply because it can't be brushed aside, and yet those who want to brush it aside are accustomed to treating arguments that way, just brushing them off if the conclusion is disagreeable, so that when this one doesn't go away with the wave of a hand, well, that's, that's kind of annoying, but I want arguments to go away if I don't like them. So if nothing else, I've seen it leave a lot of people with something to think about, and at very least... Uh, I've seen people come away with the realization that the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is something to be seriously contended with. And if that's all you achieve, well, that's something. I'm going to end episode 42 there. 
do stay tuned. There are other episodes in the works. It's just a matter of getting the time to complete them, record them, and get them out there. In the meantime, stay safe out there, kids. This is Glenn Peoples saying that's all, folks, for another episode of... Say hello to my little friend! <laughs>